Benjamin. Buona Benjamin. Wake up call. Hello and welcome back to the Digital Distillery Podcast, the show where you join me, Phil McDowell, as I take you into the hearts of those meetings of digital marketing minds that we know and love as the Digital Distillery. Now, if you're just joining us for season two of the show, these are thought leadership invite-only events held all over Europe, and they bring to the stage key movers and or shakers in the ever-evolving digital marketing industry to put forward their ideas and experiences on particular pertinent topics. Today, the place is Vienna, and the mover is CEO of a consulting agency, Michael Katzelberger. And the topic? Me, myself, and AI. So, without further a dance move, let's do this. Robot. Do the robot. Up and at him, Benjamin. Time for recharging. Artificial intelligence, or Künstliche Intelligenz, KI, as we'll hear it referred to from the stage in Vienna. I don't need to tell you that a few short months ago, this long-used but predominantly fiction-residing term exploded into the hype scene, bringing with it a myriad of professional and personal practicalities and concerns. It's been reported on, talked about, demonstrated, griped with, and existentially bemoaned in seemingly every corner of the media, and especially in professions that even get near a computer in their day-to-day, which is a lot of them. The number of reporters, TV presenters, writers, and podcasters who I have heard say, and guess what, AI wrote that introduction you just heard, with a smug grin and an eye twinkle, explicitly implying their own creative genius at being able to fool the lowly humans and to be the first one to do it. Not me, my introduction was completely 100% brain-powered, as you can surely tell from the unparalleled linguistic creativity that I pour into every single tortured metaphor and twisted turn of phrase. What is a tortured metaphor? Tortured metaphors are a device used by poor writers at an attempt to make them sound more intelligent. You're not as smart as you think you are. Shut up, stupid robot. Anyway, like I was saying... My introduction for this episode was all me in my questionably creative glory, but it took me a little while to write. And would anyone notice if I hadn't? Would my time have been better spent elsewhere, or are my thoughts and writing style important to the authenticity of the show and worth the time spent? I don't know. But these are all important questions that leaders in our industry and creatives are all of a sudden forced to ask themselves and start making financial decisions on. I hope that whatever the future holds, It's going to involve me sitting down with words. Chris cares, but we'll come back to that. First, let's go back to Mr. Katzelberger in Vienna and look briefly into where all this comes from and why it's only now we're seeing this rapid and widespread adoption of this technology, even though a lot of the concepts have been around for more than half a century. Traditionally, a lot of what is the general consensus about AI comes largely from film. In the first half of the 20th century, science fiction familiarised the world with artificially intelligent robots. From as early as The Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz in the 30s, to HAL 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey in the 60s, and Ash from Alien in the late 70s, all of whom were dastardly, insidious villains out to destroy humanity. Especially that Tin Man. And it's because of this, perhaps, that a lot of the associations we've had with artificial intelligence are overall pretty negative. Michael suggests that the first thing we need to understand about AI 
is that the whole concept is about trying to sort of recreate the naturally occurring human brain mathematically with computing power and algorithms, and that nature, as the original and accidental creator of intelligence, nothing is as ingenious and wonderful designer as her. The term artificial intelligence was coined in 1955 by a professor at Stanford, John McCarthy. But in the few years leading up to this, there were already a generation of scientists, mathematicians and philosophers playing with the idea. One of these people, notably, was a young British polymath named Alan Turing, who suggested that humans simply combine the information available to them with their ability to reason in order to solve problems, make decisions and create new ideas. And logically, that given enough computing power, machines should be able to do exactly the same thing. Computing power, however, was exactly the problem, since at the time, computers were only able to execute commands but not store them, which is obviously a prerequisite for the intelligence part. Long story short, and it is a good story, I'll link a couple of articles and papers in the show notes, but essentially it was that fundamental limit of computer storage that has held the technology back for so long, and quite simply put, it's just not anymore. Moore's law has inevitably caught up, meaning that we now have the power. After beating Kasparov in the late 90s in chess, and Google Alpha's Go besting Go champion KG in 2017, we have reached a saturation point in computing power that has led to these impressive feats we've all been hearing about for the last few months. Generative AI and the household names of Mr. GPT and friends. Although, do note that this gendering of ChatGPT is only in my head, likely because I was around and on the internet in that strange and magical time of asking Jeeves, so I kind of imagine ChatGPT is a helpful but sometimes mischievous butler. And upon catching myself gendering this machine while writing the script, I checked with ChatGPT and it was very clear to tell me that as an AI language model it doesn't have personality, consciousness or gender, but that if it's helpful for me to refer it to in that way, I'm welcome to. GPT actually stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. The generative refers to these models' ability to generate new text or image or whatever based on the input it receives. Pre-trained, meaning that the models are trained or fed large amounts of data from which to draw from, before being fine-tuned to a specific task. And transformer refers to the specific type of neural network architecture used which was released by Google in 2017. Basically, it's the type of machine learning technology that teaches these models how to understand language. What a time to be alive. These tools like Midjourney, um, ChatGPT, GPT-4, DALI 2 and so on. As you all know, it's not just OpenAI that are developing and releasing these kinds of tools, but they seem to be cropping up everywhere with all sorts of different specialisations. There are the image-based tools like DALI and DeepArt, which can generate entirely new images based on text input. There are things like Artbreeder and Journey, which specialises in synthesising video content entirely from text-based prompts. And for written content, there's OpenAI's own GPT-4 and Rider.com. But these are really just a couple of examples, as there are so many at the moment, and more all the time. So that's a bit about some of what generative AI can do, but how does it actually work? So what generative AI um, piggybacks off of is a technology called deep learning. And deep learning is effectively something that's been in development for decades. It's the attempt at making an AI that can learn in a similar way to the human brain, entering into the 
realm of human creativity. So it's uh, pulling from, you can't call it inspirations because I think inspirations is, is, is still too human, but it's almost like that. It's pulling from huge, like vast, vast, vast pools of data and synthesizing them together to be able to create things that more or less correspond to what you're looking for. While putting in funny or weird prompts to see what the machine comes up with is fascinating, it really is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the current and potential impact these tools are going to have on creative industries like digital marketing. I think that we should be preparing ourselves for some pretty major shifts. This is Chris. Are we recording? Is this going to be part of like the, you know? So Chris is a colleague of mine. All right. So my name's Christopher, uh, Christopher Kansky or Chris. I've been working as a copywriter for... I don't know how many years now. He's been writing specifically for the tech industry since 2019. Uh, so that's four years, right? And he's kind of taken it upon himself within the company to really dig into the burgeoning AI's impact on the industry and on the creative specifically. And as such, I thought he might be an excellent candidate to give us a bit of an overview of what he feels those impacts are going to be. So I think that it's going to have the most profound effect, first and foremost, in any creation that's professional. Uh, rather than creation that's necessarily artistic. But it's going to have, it's going to be felt in, in, in both regards more and more over the coming years, for sure. But the reason why I think it's going to be most pronounced in professional spheres is because when you create professionally, you are doing something that a deep learning artificial intelligence can understand a lot better than if you're doing something from a place of personal expression. Now, initially, it was generally thought that creative jobs were reasonably safe from the developing generative AI technologies, that these technologies would be really good at analysing and summarising data, but that the human brain and human experience was so integral to the act of creating something that it wouldn't be replaced so easily. What we are seeing now, however, is that the generative AI is doing a much better job than we expected, especially in the professional space. Things such as brand voice or brand image... Uh, or, um, you know, brand communications, AI is getting progressively better at, at being able to, to achieve what humans are able to achieve in professional contexts. So with the help of AI tools, graphic designers can now generate logos, typography, mock-ups, and even product designs. Writers can block out article structures, research or draft texts, and videographers can create demo videos from storyboards alone, or even create the storyboards in the first place from text all in a tiny fraction of the time and with a lot less of the skill than was traditionally required. As you can see, this could potentially lead to a noticeable reduction in creative-specific jobs, especially those in the entry level where the tasks are generally more repetitive and as such more easily automated. So like when you look at specifically social media creation, what you're creating is, is very strict guidelines. When you're posting on from a company voice on social media, you have a very limited span of time within which you can capture someone's attention and there are just best practices that pretty much any good social media manager knows how to adhere to. So you've got the easily understandable brand voice and you've got the very necessary and very easy to understand um, best practices for posting on social media. And that's stuff that AI is just so good at being able to, to do efficiently. Ads are another example. 
specifically image-based but very quickly becoming video as well, ads can now be made with a fraction of the organization and labor and therefore cost. Also sagen wir mal, ich hätte einen Kunden aus der Ernährungsbranche und der möchte das Foto eines alten, erfahrenen Fischers haben. Let's say I had a client from the food industry who wants to start a campaign using a particular character. In this case, they want an old and experienced fisherman. Deadline yesterday, shooting isn't possible due to time and budget constraints, post-production would require eight hours in Photoshop, and again, deadline yesterday. It can't be done. So typically, we would turn to stock images and see if we could find something, anything at short notice, that gave the same kind of feel. But it's never going to be exactly what the client wants, and you're extremely limited in what you can do with that one image you manage to find if any variations of that campaign are wanted in the future. Enter AI. Since the client doesn't know exactly what they want, I first go to ChatGPT and ask if it could please... I always find myself being extremely polite to these things, partially out of what my mother would call a good upbringing, and partly, you know, just in case. Anyway. If it could please give me a detailed and colourful description of an old experienced fisherman so that I can then take that description to an AI image generator. And for the purposes of science, that's exactly what I did just now. And bloody hell was I impressed. This is what came back from that exact prompt. Dramatic rendition and background seagulls performed by yours truly. The rendition that is, not the seagulls. The old fisherman stood on the weathered wooden dock, a figure etched with the marks of countless days spent at sea. His face, tanned and weather-beaten by the sun and sea spray, bore the deep lines of a life lived amidst the elements. Wisps of silver-grey hair peeked out. Really pretty impressive stuff, and it just keeps going. Exuded both strength and wisdom. Anyway, I've put the whole thing word for word into the show notes, totally worth a read, but it goes on to describe his thick salt and pepper beard, his strong sinewy hands, and his faded and patched blue fisherman's jacket. A thick salt and pepper beard, flecked with hints of sea salt. All really descriptive things that I can then take to an AI image generator and create this character for the client's campaign in whatever form they desire. And more than that, once the character's established, we can put him in other environments. Maybe they want a follow-up ad where he's out of place in a New York supermarket, or in a short video where he's sitting on the docks, fishing rod in hand, turns to wink at the camera as the fishing line goes taut, whatever. All stuff that AI can do pretty well now, and is getting exceptionally better by the month. Great, right? So then, who's the loser in this situation? Yeah, I do think there is going to be a kind of obsolescence of a lot of jobs to the extent where you can have non-creatives that are going to be able to create what a freelancer uh, is able to create, for example, just with a simple prompt and then kind of be able to edit that into something that's perfectly fitting for their needs. Uh, that might not be as great as what a freelancer, for example, can create, but it's a lot cheaper. Yeah, it's like it's a lot cheaper, you know. Consider also how plagiarism changes. Up until now, copyright, IP ownership and plagiarism protection. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a whole episode of discussion worth of issues with these things, especially in the US at the moment. But relatively speaking, it's pretty clear. I created this piece of content and registered it somehow that I did. And more or less, no one is allowed to just rip it off. But when it's a computer program ripping it off, and although I asked the computer for something, but I'm not aware the result is violating someone's IP, then whose fault is it? 
tricky. Of course, you could ignore this whole technical revolution thing in an attempt to stay pure in the old ways, but typically that doesn't tend to work out so well either. As is so delicately put by one of our esteemed panellists, Herr Demner, in his interview. Look, it's stupid not to use new technology because you will fall out of any relevant set, of course. And in the time where everything is exploding, everything is so fragmented, if you're not using technology, you're out of business soon. Yeah. To be fair, how much you rely on the tech is another matter, and Mr Denmer warned against complete reliance. He proved his point by creating arguably the most memorable moment of the whole event where he got up and jumped up and down rave-style to pounding music on stage, only relying on the analogue technology of old knees, as he put it. Another concern mentioned on the panel was that of the rise of homogeneity. And actually, this is something that the delightfully insightful Thomas Koch spoke about in his Analogue versus Digital interview from last season of the show. Which, by the way, if you haven't caught up on last season yet, what are you waiting for? Okay, shameless self-promotion. Yeah, check. Where were we? Ah, yes. So if everyone is producing high-quality content using the same tools as one another, and tool, for want of a better word here, since yes, the Great Wall of China and the Statue of David were probably both built using hammers, but are clearly worlds apart. Dad, why did they make the Great Wall of China? That, that was during the time of Emperor Nazi Goring, and uh, it was to keep the rabbits out. There's too many rabbits in China then we are inevitably going to start seeing a whole lot of campaigns that have a lot in common and therefore potentially stand out less and have a reduced impact, even though they are of really high quality. Of course, this shift in the landscape will have a flip side somewhere. What that's going to be is up for debate, but there are a few sound ideas buzzing around the space already. I also see there being potentially kind of more of a desire among like authentic voices within marketing, I think you can maybe foresee that as more and more work becomes AI generated, as more and more kind of blog posts and social media posts and stuff like that become AI generated, people like at least the illusion of human voices. And instead of kind of working to create that illusion, I think that you can foresee a lot of brands saying, we don't want to create illusions, we're just going to actually have authentic humans behind our brand voice. This shift in technology and the way we operate professionally leading to a shift in value is not at all a new thing. A programmer in recent years has had plenty of job opportunities across a range of industries and even the potential to strike it rich with some neat little idea. But if you were a programmer in the 1960s, for example, you might get lucky and be one of a handful to land a job at NASA or in a mining company like my dad did, who still talks about learning the programming language for Tran 4 and feeding the computers with punch cards. But it certainly wasn't a safe bet for employment, and the best you could hope for was drawing a steady middle-class wage. Before that even, the rise of the Industrial Revolution favoured physical strength and able-bodied individuals to work the burgeoning technology at the time, aka factories. So people with those particular attributes found it easier to get a job. And with this new technology, things are likely to change in what the demand for labour is. With AI, certain skills are going to be more or less valuable to employers. 
For example, the value of an individual's ability to sit and stay focused to perform a range of tasks using AI is rising, whereas the value of vast factual knowledge, such as a doctor or lawyer typically had to have, might fall. Instead, the skills for synthesis and persuasion, in the case of the lawyer, or empathy and an experience-based intuition for a doctor might become more valuable. In marketing, true originality and authenticity may start to be heavily favoured because those are the only things that poke their heads up above the mass of well-written, proven format, polished AI pieces or campaigns. And then is the true creative valued even more? I mean, you got like amazing examples like the Moon Pie Twitter account, which is just incredible. Or like the McDonald's Twitter account is another really good one where like it really... They, they break the fourth wall and they talk about being social media managers. I mean, I've seen the Moon Pie Twitter account. I don't even have Twitter and I've looked at it just for the laughs because you've got that person writing there about how difficult it is to be a social media manager for Moon Pie and it's hilarious and people love it. Will the shift go back towards physical types of jobs or more analog types of art where things that aren't mass produced rise in popularity? Only time will tell, but one thing is for sure and always has been. Those willing to read the surf and ride the wave, tweaking and twisting with the flow in order to maximise that unstoppable force of nature, of progress, or at the very least of change, are going to be the ones that come out standing, and not face first in the wet, sandy and sometimes slimy and stinging embrace of the jellyfish of the change averse. Thank you for joining me on this splash into the first part of the Digital Distillery event in Vienna. Still to come, we're looking at responsible media, whatever is happening to that damned uncrumblable cookie, and whether or not CTV has actually successfully killed the linear star. A big thank you again to everyone who attended the event and made it possible. To the crew in Vienna, to the video team for their tireless efforts, and of course to executive producer Nadia Koski and project leads Dennis Kirshner and Stephanie Leonardi. I look forward to seeing you all here again next time on the Digital Distillery Podcast. Au revoir.